The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 22, Star Wars by Marvel Comics, Part 2. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris. And in this episode, we bring you the second part of my two-part discussion with a confessor about the classic Star Wars series from Marvel Comics. The original Star Wars comic book series at Marvel ran for 107 issues, plus annuals, and the Return of the Jedi limited series from 1977 through 1986. Last episode, in the first part of our four-part discussion, Confessor and I discussed the contributions of Roy Thomas, who helped create the Star Wars comic book and wrote the first 10 issues before abruptly quitting after editorial interference from George Lucas and Lucas Films convinced him it wasn't worth the hassle. In this episode, we'll be discussing issues 11 to 38 and the new creative team that took over after Roy Thomas and artist Howard Chaikin left, which was writer Archie Goodwin and artists Carmen Infantino. So settle in and I hope you enjoy. Before we move on to issue 11, there were a couple things about the previous arc that I wanted to mention real quick. One is that, as we mentioned earlier, the storyline for issues 7 through 10 was loosely based on Seven Samurai or the Magnificent Seven. In the story, the group of bandits that's threatening the village that Han is hired to protect, they're called the Cloud Riders. And in the solo movie, there's a sequence that's very similar where Han and his gang are again hired to protect this poor town from these uh, encroaching bandits. And they use that name, the Cloud Riders, for the bad guys there as an homage to the story in issues 7 through 10. Really? Yeah, because it's yeah. Serge X and the, and the Cloud Riders. Yeah. Far out. I didn't know that. So that was pretty cool. More importantly for our series, one thing that happens right off the bat in issue 7 that's going to immediately get followed up on right here in issues 11 through 15 is the story starts with Han and Chewie heading out to pay off their debt to Jabba the Hutt because they just got all this reward money for helping the rebellion and they're immediately intercepted by this old frenemy of Han's named Crimson Jack who's a space pirate and he steals all their money and runs off with it. It resets the status quo so that Han is still in debt to Jabba the Hutt. This is going to be important later on. We're going to talk about this in a minute when we get into Crimson Jack's next appearance here in the new arc. So I did want to bring that up to, to properly set that up. But before we talk about Crimson Jack, before we talk about issues 11 through 15, I think we need to talk about the new creative team, Archie Goodwin, and of course, artist Carmen Infantino. The infamous Carmine Infantino run. I don't know. I have a real love-hate sort of relationship with Carmine Infantino's art on the series. I mean, obviously, he's one of the all-time greats. You know, he's it's almost... You know, to sort of be disparaging of his artwork is almost to sort of be irrelevant in a way, because clearly he's one of the all time greats. But I do think that he was he was a pretty bad fit for Star Wars, really, as I understand it as well, the, the sort of angular sort of weirdly posed kind of idiosyncratic art that he was turning in is very much how his style was at that period sort of i guess that would be considered his late period but i just don't think it was a very good fit for star wars and on top of that i think he was i don't know whether he wasn't interested or what it was but i i i can be left with no other conclusion that and then you know he was almost willfully not drawing the star wars sort of tech or the spaceships to look like their movie counterparts and of course as, as a fan at the time that's what you wanted you know Infantino's art used to really annoy me as a kid you know even I mean I was no comics connoisseur or anything like you know anything like that I still I'm still not but you know I was just it was Star Wars. I almost didn't care who was drawing it but I could recognize his art and I really didn't like it. 
he's a great artist and the sort of sequential storytelling for want of a better term is is impeccable really good you know it's you never have to look twice uh, a panel in those comics to understand what's going on they're really clear really well executed but they're just so unstar warsy and and painfully angular i'm on record on the podcast as being very dismissive of infantino's work post 1976 like after he was canned as the publisher at dc and had to go back to drawing comics i just felt like his art went downhill he wasn't really invested in it now having said that i do have sort of also a love-hate relationship with his star wars work it's, it's mostly on the hate side i have a theory and it, i've you know i don't really have a lot of evidence for this really but i think that infantino's sort of idiosyncratic art style actually hurt sales on marvel's star wars comic a lot because if you look at the overall sales figures and sales kind of arc of the entire series you would think that as each movie came out the sales on the comic would go up and you would think that maybe the peak would be around the time of return of the jedi when interest in the in the franchise really built to sort of fever pitch and it was the end of the trilogy and it was the final but actually if you look at it that's not the case at all so the the sales started off and and went up and they peaked around about 1978 not long after infantino came on board as the as the regular artist and then they very steadily declined and they continued to decline all the way through the empire strikes back and uh return of the jedi and then after that then they really steeply start to decline you know and 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 then later on in the run you get these letters from readers who are sort of saying oh you know i picked up a few issues back in you know 78 or 79 or whatever and i was turned off by the art but i've just come back and uh, i'm loving you know walt simonson's artwork or i'm loving you know ron frenzy's artwork or whatever it is and i i've got no proof for this this is only a theory but my gut feeling is that actually infantino was put on the book at exactly the time when the maximum number of people were picking it up to read it and a lot of them were put off by that artwork it sounds very plausible to me one thing that struck me with this story is it again it didn't feel very star wars to me i mean it's pirates fighting dragons Mm, on a water mm. planet and in a way the fact that none of infantino's characters looked at all like the movie version actually made it a little bit easier for me to accept the story is it not really that star wars i mean it's really it's about space wreckers isn't it i mean i the water planet is an obvious jump from like the desert planet of tatooine it's like well you know you can almost kind of see where they were coming from it's like well we've had a uh, desert planet what other uh, let's, let's have one that's all water like the the polar opposite that story arc that doom world uh story arc is really about the sort of space wreckers uh, you've got the thing of like crimson jack he's a really bizarre character but he's really memorable i mean you wouldn't forget him in a hurry you know i mean and it and it's not just because he's in those ridiculous short shorts either you know he's there is something about him it's like he's a proper sort of he's a proper pirate he's like you know our gym lad kind of pirate but he's in and even wields a cutlass you know but he's in space and yeah okay that in particular that's not a star warsy thing at all and that does stick out like a sore thumb but, you know, he's sort of on the make and he's got this sort of hijacked Star Destroyer. And um, and then down on the planet side, you've got these wreckers, that, um, you know, led by Governor Quag. And again, Governor Quag, I think, is one of the most memorable characters in, in, in the entire series. I mean, he's it's not a great story arc. I'll give you that. But I think it has really memorable moments and memorable characters you know and and i also really like terry austin's inking over infantino he's probably my favorite you know inker in the uh, over infantino in that sort of pre empire strikes back period you know <laughs> but infantino of course wasn't the only person that's new to the book here we also get archie goodwin as a writer and there was something uh, interesting about the story for me he brings crimson jack back from who had appeared in the previous arc and he finishes off that storyline here but it's the first of what i think we're going to see a number of of sort of recurring 
villains that he uses throughout his run because he's not really allowed to use Vader. We get a little bit of Vader later on, and when we get him, it's fantastic. But mm-hmm. in this this series, um, you know, he's still not allowed to use Vader, so he has Crimson Jack as part of that story. But then in the next issue, 16, is where we really start to get his first, like, real sort of a stand-in recurring villain to sort of not not exactly not take the same role as vader but in sort of a broader sense someone who can be a recurring sort of background menace for the characters and that's the introduction of valance yeah yeah Captain valance the hunter yeah great character i mean one of the all-time you know top three best uh, original characters that the, the marvel series brought i think i'm curious what your other two are i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to ask me that. <laughs> yeah, so we get Valance the Hunter here. Now, the big surprise for me in this issue was I was not expecting to see Jackson again because I figured after what I knew right. about him, I was like, oh, I, I assume that that was a one-off. We're never going to see that guy again. But no, Jackson's back in this issue. That's right. Yeah, very surprising. A, given that Roy Thomas is no longer writing the book and also given that Lucasfilm very firmly by all accounts said that they hated that character and they didn't ever want to see him again and yet here he is that's um something i would just say about that um that issue the hunter that's really interesting i think considering we're still fairly early on in the series i mean it's only issue 16 but none of the central star wars cast appear in that it's it's an issue that is completely carried by original marvel characters like valance the hunter like you know jackson that's quite bold i think so too and what's interesting is for me this is the best issue of the run so far i thought yeah i'd agree with that but i found the subplot that archie goodwin starts here that becomes one of the main sort of background plot lines and sometimes foreground plot lines of his entire run as writer is the idea of people in the star wars universe being racist against droids now as As you pointed out, this is hinted Mm. at briefly in the original movie when Mm. the the people of the cantina won't allow C-3PO and R2-D2 into the place because they say they don't serve their kind there. Yeah, it's very dismissive. It's not just they won't let them in. It's very, you know, the way that the barkeeper snarls you know we don't serve their kind here i mean it's very much like that sort of you know pre-civil rights kind of deep south segregation thing i think and it's what's interesting is that it's really not brought up again in the movie and nobody really reacts to it the fact that r2d2 and c3po they're clearly portrayed as sentient beings and yet even the heroes treat them like second class like they're not even people like they're gonna like wipe han, their memory I mean, right at the beginning yeah, like han is really you know like there's that scene in docubay 94 where um you know they're just getting on board the falcon and and the 3po says and he's very chirpy slightly camp way uh you know hello sir and there's that look isn't there that, that han solo sort of gives is like almost like sort of disgust but in this story we get valance the hunter and he's got this intense hatred of droids and we eventually find out that's because he himself is a cyborg he was like terribly Hmm. wounded at some point and he was rebuilt so now he's half human and half droid and he sort of has this uh this hatred for droid kind and he destroys them and kills them whenever he can um and just one thing i was just going to say is don't forget that this isn't even the first time that we've seen that kind of prejudice against well cyborgs specifically in in the marvel run because in the very in issue seven the new planets new perils uh episode you know the, the very first post star wars movie thing of course when Han and Chewbacca first get to the planet of uh, Aduba 3, there's this sort of monk or priest who's trying to bury a cyborg on Spaces Hill or, you know, like a kind of the Western sort of boot hill kind of thing. And all the townsfolk are really like, you know, we don't want, you know, like half droid uh, uh, people buried there that's that's you know uh, uh, and it's so the, the the hunter thing with valance that wasn't even the first time it was referenced in the original stories that prejudice against droids and even cyborgs that were part droid so issue 17 is interesting after we we had these two long arcs one issue 7 to 10 and then the pirate next pirate one in, in 11 to 15 it's followed by two one-offs first we get this and then issue 17 is a flashback story where it sort of shows Luke and Biggs and how he learned to become a pilot and stuff. I loved that comic, Crucible it's called. And I agree with you, I think that 
you know, forget the adaptation, but of the original stories, both those fill-in issues, um, you know, the Hunter in issue 16 and Crucible in issue 17 are by far best issues up until that point. To actually see this kind of flashback and actually see it and be hanging out with Big Starklighter and Luke Skywalker on Tatooine and you've got like incidental characters that you know we're left on the cutting room floor like fixer and cammy and all these little incidental characters that you would know from the marvel adaptation or the novelization but if you only knew the film you'd never have seen them because they were cut out of the film to me that's when the marvel star wars series was at its best when it was exploring these things that were only hinted at in the movie and fleshing them out also the other great thing about those two issues is that you've got walter simonson on on the first one delivering some absolutely fantastic artwork but on the on the other one you've got herb Trimpe. now i'm not a massive fan of herb Trimpe, i have to say but i think his artwork in that story is absolutely amazing really i mean really like a tour de force you know it's um and it's inked by al milgram and a lot of people you know are very down on al milgram but i think there's magic you know there's magic in that issue yeah i agree it's a really good issue for the time period and the fact that the events in issue 17 were later written out of canon and completely contradicted by a later story is a good reminder that the writers here were just sort of flying blind it must have been a little frustrating not knowing where the story was going because this is a danger at any point you could write something that's going to be contradicted or not going to make any sense the way we really see it throughout the run is with the relationship between luke and leia because they're constantly having them flirt and think about each other and stuff and in retrospect it's really cringy Um, incest was definitely a big big part of the uh yeah of the uh, marvel star wars comic Uh, but you know you know the star wars comic was not done on the the so-called marvel method you know they didn't do it like that that it was the scripts were were fully written out and they were they had to be submitted to lucasfilm and lucasfilm had to okay them and then you know everything was signed off on by by lucasfilm and so the fact that those things weren't being picked up you know it's because even george lucas didn't know I believe that Luke and Leia were going to be brother and sister. I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, it's my understanding that that wasn't decided until they were already working on Return of the Jedi. It's only in hindsight that that has become creepy, yeah. Because, you know, even in the adaptation of the first movie, I mean, I know in the movie there's the famous peck on the cheek and, you know, just for luck and before they swing across the chasm but in the adaptation there's a, a bit at the rebel base where they have a proper snog you know they are like eyes closed hands clenched together you know sucking face <laughs> um, well you know even on a non-incest level um, and I think we've talked more about incest in the last five minutes than the rest of my podcast episodes combined. Well, it's, I've, I've, it's what I was hoping to bring to the table. <laughs> well, and you have. <laughs> thank you. Um, just on a character level, the pairing of Luke and Leia just seems weird because even in the first movie, she just seems so much more mature and worldly than he just seems like a dopey yokel, like whiny kid compared to her. And I just can't see that pairing working. It just doesn't make sense that she would be at all romantically interested in Luke. I agree, but he is ultimately the hero and it's that hero's journey, that classic hero's journey thing. I mean, I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely. And even in the first film, she's, it's clear she's kind of interested in Han as well. And, you know, he's kind of interested in her and it's, but again, you, you know, you have to see those comics in the context of their time. I mean, as far as I was concerned, when I was reading those comics as a kid, the sort of the couple, if you like, were, were Luke and Leia. Luke was the hero. Leia was the heroine. That was, you know, it's made Marion and Robin Hood, you know, that's, that's just the way it was kind of thing. But yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that looking at it through adult eyes, it's like, how would that work? But, you know, quite apart from the fact that they're related, you know. So after these two solo issues, we get a big arc, the Wheel Saga. And yeah. I thought this was a really good story. I also felt like this felt like Star Wars to me, like the, the universe felt right. The characters felt right. And then we also get at the end, Darth Vader showing up. It just this felt like a proper Star Wars story. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, again, I think it's it's a, certainly a better arc than 
the Doom World arc is certainly better than the first uh, Goodwin Infantino arc. <sighs> For my money, and this is purely just you know like subjective opinion, I still think the Starhoppers of Aduba Three is a more enjoyable uh, story arc. For all its flaws, but yeah, I agree with you that it's a more certainly the wheel story arc is much more of a, a much more of a Star Warsy kind of thing. Yeah. So there's a couple things that happen in here that uh, of particular interest for me. Uh, just to go over the story real quick, the wheel is basically this giant sort of uh, uh, casino in space, mm. like a tourist wheel, and the various uh, main characters all end up there. Chewie and Han get captured, and they're forced to fight against each other in this arena, and they end up teaming up to break out. There's an interesting continuation of Goodwin's exploration of droid human relations yeah. here that I found very interesting where the governor of this place has like a, a droid that works for him and they sort of as the story goes along as they're exposed to the relationship between C-3PO and R2-D2 and Luke they sort of reevaluate what their own relationship right uh, yeah, it's Governor Grayshade is the uh, governor of the wheel, isn't it? Is it Master Com? Is that the is that the droid? It's an interesting story, definitely. And uh, like you say, the fact that there's this sort of casino that is exempt, you know, that essentially the sort of the Empire don't mess there. They never go there. Although, of course, in the in the the, the, the sort of telling of the story, they they actually do. But um, which is very sort of um, like you said earlier. Sometimes Marvel gets there before the movies. It's kind of like what happens in Cloud City in Empire, where they're like, "Oh, the Empire doesn't mess with here. We've got to deal with them. They leave us alone." And then, mm, of course, mm. Vader shows as soon as there's a reason, Vader's like, "No, no, change, change. We just change the deal." Yeah, that's right. And of course, the other thing about that arc where Marvel jumped the gun is that the very first episode of that of that wheel story arc is is titled "The Empire Strikes." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it's almost like the Empire Strikes Back, but it's pretty close to, you know. And again, I think that's, you know, Goodwin. I don't think I've really sort of sung Goodwin's praises enough because he's, he's a hell of a writer anyway, but he was a hell of a Star Wars writer. I think he was, you know, he has such a good handle on it. And interestingly as well, he really writes Leia really well. And I think the first time you really see that is during the wheel arc, the way that she's, you know, she basically sort of plays uh, Senator Greyshade because she knows him from the days of the Senate. And again, there's all that sort of backstory that's hinted at and, to a degree, sort of fleshed out a little bit. But then she's also really feisty and... It's the, it's, the, it's the character that Carrie Fisher portrayed on the screen, you know, and he he has a really good handle on that uh, in the same way that I think he has a really good handle on Han Solo, although sometimes Solo's dialogue is a little bit like, you. it's kind of hard to imagine Harrison Ford saying those lines, but I think he's got a really good idea of that, or, of the character. Luke, less so, but I think his Han and Leia, and particularly his Leia, are really spot on, you know, you can really imagine Carrie Fisher saying that those lines and that was always the litmus test for me even as a kid reading it you know that if i could imagine the characters saying that then that was obviously better than if i if i couldn't so after this arc which which i thought was very good we get a, another sort of one-off uh, solo it's another flashback story this one with obi-wan in his younger days and of course this story makes no sense in terms of continuity now like everything in it has been completely contradicted and blown out of the water yes it's been violated by sort of uh, by continuity quite a bit but i think i think you can still sort of read it and it makes some kind of sense within the uh within the thing it's a it's not a great story though i don't think it's not it's a fill-in issue it's joe duffy's first issue on the series and it's nowhere near uh the sort of quality or caliber that she turned in when she returned to the series but as i understand it she was she was quite new to marvel at the time i think she'd only maybe written a couple of issues of something like power man and iron, power fist. Man. Uh, and iron fist that's it i think she'd maybe written a couple of issues of that but she was a massive star wars fan and she i imagine she probably sort of petitioned the powers that be all you know can i write an issue can i write an issue uh, but it's not a particularly great issue but it is interesting because 
wow, this is like the, the old republic. And really, again, this is the first time. It's important because but this is the first time that anybody had really ever tried to write about the old days of the old republic before the empire, you know, and that was, well, that's important, even if it's not a particularly great story, you know. Um, and again, isn't there a, um, there's a droid, isn't there, yes. that sort of attaches itself to Kenobi in that story. And again, it's, it doesn't want to travel on its own. Is that right? Because again, it was sort of feeling, fearing that it might be um, set upon or, or in danger, you know, Joe's Duffy picks up on the, the droid subplot. It works its way into mm-hmm. here. I thought it was an okay story. It was just hard for me in retrospect to reconcile it. So issues 25 and 26, I feel like we're, we really get into the, the meat of the Goodwin run starting here. This Not is the Siege of Yavin. Where we're introduced, and I think we have maybe different ways we're going to pronounce this, but uh, to House Tag, Taggy, Tag, Tagay. I, th- I think you're probably pronouncing it right, but for me it will always be Tag because that's how I pronounced it as a kid, and it will always be that. The house tag was first mentioned back in the Wheel Saga. It was sort of just a name drop. Yeah, although it came from the film. That that family name came from the film, of course. It's the way I say in the film. It's in the novelization, actually. But So you know the scene in the first movie where Gramoff Tarkin is sat around the table with all the Imperial commanders, and Vader famously chokes the guy, you know, I find your lack of faith disturbing and all this kind of thing, you know. One of the other commanders that's there is commander tage or tag or where his name is and again that's something that archie goodwin took from that and then thought well okay well if one of the brothers is like that high up maybe there's you know and he ran with that so it did actually come from you know the the screenplay i'm pretty sure that it's mentioned in the the marvel adaptation you know even if it's only in a narration box in that scene or something it, it mentions commander Tej and presumably the rest of the, of the tag or Tej family that we meet are all meant to be related but yeah so there's there's two things about this story that I found interesting. Mm. One is Baron Tag because he and the rest of the Tag family become the primary bad guys for the rest of Goodwin's run. And mm. I found him to be very interesting because he also hates Vader. So he there's sort of like yeah. this this triangle where he mm. wants to destroy Vader and he wants to destroy Luke and Luke wants to destroy both of them and Vader wants to destroy both of them. So they all, everybody wants to kill each other. Mm. I think it's some great writing uh, from Goodwin. And I think this is the thing, you know, one of the things that I often see online as you do, you know, people sort of saying about the Marvel series is that they're often quite dismissive of it as if it's sort of childish or it's not really sort of in keeping with with you know uh, i know george lucas's kind of star wars aesthetic or whatever but i think at its best i mean it could be childish and it could be silly but at its best it really brought up some quite quite sort of mature themes and some quite quite sort of nuanced characters really and i don't i don't see it as being childish at all i think it i think if you want to get into it that that deeply it can be quite complex as well i agree i think that they explore some pretty pretty complex themes and goodwin he's got a couple different things going on the other thing real quick i want to talk about here is Mm. in the movie the empire knew that the rebels had a base on yavin 4 so as the characters have been going through the series they've been like you know going on these missions and so the question is why has the empire not done anything about the fact that Mm. they, they know where the rebel base well in this issue they do i've thought that their response was a little tepid you know i would think they would send more uh you know they would want to like send a whole fleet (laughs) to do this but they're doing something here and then we get like a recurring plot thread that happens really for the rest of the whole series is um the rebellion trying to find a new base because they're constantly having Mm. their previous base base blown up yeah and in fact also we have moments in the series where they have to go back to their old base because you know the 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 empire could learn secrets from the from the old abandoned bases and stuff like that but to me that that really works because it's it shows the sort of uh, nomadic kind of uh, organization that the rebellion is you know they're essentially terrorists you know i mean there's the whole thing isn't there one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and all the rest of it but within certainly from the viewpoint of the established law and order which would be the empire in the Star Wars universe these are a band of dangerous terrorists you know and I think that that constantly being on the run is yeah I think that's pretty sort of realistic really but I think the the siege at Yavin arc again I think up until that point I think this is the best arc 
that we've seen when you were saying about that the you know why didn't the empire just send them like everything they had at yavin because they knew about it of course you know yes you know realistically that's exactly what they've done but i also quite like the little sort of the little get out that that goodwin utilizes whereby you know the empire is shaken by the destruction of the of the death star you know they they didn't expect that this was their all-time best you know weapon um scariest symbol of their of their you know oppression and their power you know 20 odd years in the making you know we saw at the end of of um revenge of the sith episode three the very beginnings of the death star being constructed is like 20 years in the making and it's barely out of the garage you know really it's been used to destroy all the armor that's it this tiny woefully underpowered and you know under-equipped band of rebels have destroyed it and that within the marble continuity the the explanation is that that it shakes the emperor and the empire and they are very wary of suffering such a you know another really high profile defeat like that because it's that defeat alone has really undermined their authority within the galaxy. Yeah, it's true. And he also does another interesting thing here, which we do see throughout the run, and which I personally found very interesting, which is showing, A, that the Empire is not this sort of monolithic organization, because B as the bad guys and we see this a lot just in with supervillains in superhero comics the bad guys sort of undermine themselves and in this case baron tag sort of wants to do this to get the credit so he can get one over on vader so there's factions within the empire that are sort of working at cross purposes at different points in the series where it would have made sense for them all to work together to take out the rebellion but they're kind of too busy with their own personal grudges to it's like beating vader is more important than beating the rebellion but 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 also you have to remember that um the the tag family or but particularly um you know baron ormond tag they're they're not really the empire per se are they they are like an independent sort of mining company that are affiliated with the empire and have incredible wealth and huge resources at their disposal but they're not actually the empire and then of course you have this vendetta where you know uh ormond tage or tag has been has been robbed of his of his sight by vader and he's hell-bent on on revenge you know um and, and also wants to not just that but he also wants to supplant vader in the eyes of the emperor he wants to kill luke skywalker and destroy the rebel alliance you know where vader failed he and vader are essentially competing for the the emperor's favor if you like so after the story we get a series of really interesting i don't want to say one shots because 27 and 29 go together but first we get 27 where we get the return of valance the hunter where he tracks down luke and at the end is actually moved by luke's relationship with his droids where c-3po and r2d2 are going to sacrifice themselves to save luke and so valance sort of has this epiphany that you know, droids aren't all bad. He sort of has a change of heart and decides not only to let Luke go, but sort of work to sort of save Luke. Yeah, because he feels that Luke sort of represents uh, the hope for uh, like a better galaxy where somebody like him won't either be persecuted or feel the need to hide who they really are. I mean, I mentioned like the whole civil rights thing earlier, but actually the thing with Valance is almost more like, you know, somebody who's really homophobic, but is actually closeted themselves. And again, that's what I mean when I say that, you know, you could just read it as a kid and take it for what it is, as this fantastical space opera sci-fi adventure. But actually, once you read it when you're a bit older, you realize what like Archie Goodwin's really hinting at here. And actually, there's some quite complex themes being pushed out here, you know, and and sort of uh, addressed. So in the next issue, 28, we switch over from Luke to Han, and we get a story with Skinny Jabba, where... Han yeah. is able to get out from under Jabba's debt, but only until they realize later that they shouldn't have done that. A terrible issue, really. Again, it's one of those ones that I really loved as a kid. The Stone Mites, um, I thought, were a, a really great little sort of creation. They're very, very memorable again. I love the, the the Stone Mites. I thought that was a great idea. They were really threat. I remember reading those comics, you know, bringing them home from the newsagents and, and reading them and being genuinely grossed out by by these uh, teeming insects and 
genuinely sort of scared about you know you really felt that like Han and Chewie were, and, and the Falcon were really in, in trouble and were in, under threat but you know the, the, the story itself is um, you know is not great and of course it's it's, it's um, riddled with uh, continuity issues you know uh, starting with the the fact that Jabba looks completely different on down really well let's just skip to the next issue then because I thought 29 was a fantastic issue so we get the return of Darth Vader and Vader at this point doesn't know the identity of who destroyed the Death Star. He, he, so he's searching to find out who did it. He doesn't know it's Luke. And That's he right, yeah. gets this lead on this rebel agent who has the information. And basically Valance the Hunter shows up and convinces the the rebel basically, the rebel kills himself so he doesn't That's fall right. into Vader's hands. And then... Lucian, Lucian Tyler, is that his name or something? And then we have this awesome showdown between Vader and Valance to the death where yeah. at the end Vader ends up killing Valance but they have kept the secret from falling to Vader's hands so Vader still does not know who Luke Skywalker is. Yeah and it basically he sacrificed himself to give Luke more time really to sort of become a better you know Jedi or become better attuned to the force and it's a really interesting story arc for Valance. It's a shame that he died because actually he was a great great character but on the other hand at least he didn't overstay his welcome. You know he starts off as such a sort of droid hater and then he sort of yeah he realizes that oh okay so there is this special relationship between you know r2 3po and uh, and luke yeah and then essentially sacrifices himself for the very thing that back in issue 16 that he hated and in fact the very person um it's heavy stuff you know it's it's dressed up as just comics but it's you know it's heavy stuff at its core it's interesting just on a minor note something that they didn't know at this time but uh so it didn't come up really but vader of course is also a cyborg so when valance and mm, vader mm. are fighting uh it's a little too bad we didn't know that because i think it could have added the Yet another like subtext to that story if right right but uh, i thought this issue was great again there's some great carmen infantino artwork in this in terms of the sort of panel composition although it's important to note as well that by this point in the run goodwin was doing very very basic not even layouts or breakdowns you know really basic almost stick figure kind of panel compositions for the entire comic which is just interesting to sort of note really but yeah great issue really great issue and the next one as well where of course they focus in on Leia is a great great done in one issue as well I yeah, think yeah one thing that I really appreciate about Goodwin's run is actually the pacing we we have these big arcs but then he you know we get this Luke solo story a Han solo story this 29 where we have it's basically a Vader story and a Valance story 30 mm. we get the Leia spotlight and then after that we have the annual and then then we get into another big storyline I like how he sort of breaks up the action with these shorter bits that are great character moments and but they also help build stuff and inform stuff so that when we get to the big arcs they're they feel big the thing with this era of the comic you just think if only there'd been another artist working on it when i was going through these issues and doing them for my review you know you'd get some really good issues and they were always the thing that let them down was the artwork you know the thing that stopped them getting you know a nine out of ten or a ten out of ten rating was was the artwork you know and particularly when you know it became obvious by this point that infantino had absolutely no intention of drawing stuff to look more like the star wars aesthetic you know it, it's hard not to sort of hold that against him if you're trying to evaluate the issues critically you know yeah i agree uh but so it, as you mentioned issue 30 is a, a leia spotlight issue and it's interesting i i found it very interesting because leia is sort of has a very subtle thinking about the rebellion where she's not just thinking about attacking stuff she's working on sort of inspiring right uh, sort of the common people it's like starting a grassroots movement as opposed to like a top-down thing which is directly opposed to the way the empire works so i i really liked the sort of the subtle she's playing the long game here with trying to set up the rebellion yeah absolutely the planet of uh metalorn as well which is the sort of factory industrial planet that the, the whole episode is sort of set on is sort of interesting as well it's a it's a little bit too sort of orwellian for my tastes you know within within star wars i don't know that it's particularly sort of star warsy but it's such a great little done in one issue and as i said earlier i think goodwin had a really really good handle on how to write layer and i think you sort of see that 
here although you know i mean maybe she's a little bit a little bit more arrogant here than she probably should be because let's not forget really you know great issue that it was and yes it's wonderful she's trying to inspire these people who are enslaved in this um you know in this sort of horrible kind of industrial planet really the the mission that she embarked on in that issue was you know a bit of a disaster or even i mean a bit of a, a failure really you know she didn't really sort of you know she barely escaped with her life really and uh, yeah okay she's acting as like a figurehead and inspires hope but i seem to remember at the end she's quite sort of pleased with herself about the mission and i remember thinking but but your mission was a failure <laughs> you know <laughs> really i wouldn't be quite so sort of self-congratulatory about it so then we have annual number one and just the main note for me here was it was really interesting in terms of is one of the first times you really actually get into exploring like the Jedi and the Sith because we have an apprentice of Vader's uh, who Luke mm. faces off mm. against and who ends up dying at the at the end of the issue. Yeah, that's right. And again, there's lots of continuity issues with this as well because they talk about a number of times in the issue. They talk about how they encountered Luke's father and Darth Vader because, of course, at this point pre empire strikes back you know there's no reason we as readers or anybody who's a fan of star wars would would think that they were the same person because the way it's been explained to us by kenobi in the first film is that they're separate people you know that that vader a trade and murdered luke's father you know i didn't actually read this at the time it was only like about 1983 they reprinted it in the uk i really like it it's a great story and it's kind of like feature length because it's it's sort of slightly longer but it's it's sort of probably problematic from that sort of point of view but you know it's chris claremont I, I think he i think the writing is really really good and the artwork i think it's mike vosberg isn't it the artwork i think is really good really inventive and also there's a um i think early on there's like uh, a, a woman who's a friend of han solos who is on yes. the falcon with them yes, and she's Katia. i thought she was a very interesting character Katia. And, yeah that's uh, it yeah i thought it was kind of a waste to kill her off that quickly yeah and she's but she's sort of african-american in appearance and that's that's really the first time you know way before lando that's really the first time we saw anybody of that color skin in the comics it is a shame she was killed off because i liked her at the time i remember reading it thinking oh she's interesting and it might have been nice to have had a bit more of her i guess she must be like the first sort of kind of you know african-american for want of a better term because obviously she's from you know the planet Kirill or whatever wherever she's from yeah it must be the sort of the earliest example of that in star wars i would think so uh, but, uh by the time yeah. this is coming out we're starting to get pretty close to empire strikes back so goodwin really uh, feel like starting with issue 31 things really start getting full speed ahead with goodwin's run we get a four issue arc with the tag family and they've got this giant machine called the the omega frost that's gonna freeze everything solid i love that i would just say that before it, it was around this time that we started to get like uk exclusive stories um uh, right at the sort of tail end of 1979, we got um, the, uh, the the way of the Wookiee, which was so. What was happening um, was that because the Star Wars in the UK was a weekly publication, you know, obviously fairly quickly. So they were reprinting like half a half a US issue per week. So you can you know you can appreciate that eventually they're going to catch up and start to run out of stories very very quickly. They started to catch up and they started to reprint like the pizzazz strips and sort of anything they could get that just to fill up these things but it became obvious that they were going to need uh like specifically written and drawn stories to fill in the gap or else they were simply going to run out and of course it was such a popular big selling magazine a comic for marvel uk there was no way they could allow that to happen it had to be out every week you know it was making too much money so the american creative team of goodwin and infantino were commissioned to write these stories a, a series of uh, i think four four different stories that would be published just in the uk so we talked earlier about the the um the day after the death star which was one of those uh stories and then there was again there was one called the way of the wookie which was interesting because they sort of went back to to kashik the uh you know the um the wookie planet which again you know um you know you'd you'd kind of seen the states in the holiday special but for us in the uk that was the that was the first time we'd ever really seen kashik 
yeah, these aren't particularly great stories, but they're interesting, again, in that sort of world-building, kind of fleshing out kind of way that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I did um, find it interesting in Way of the Wookiee that they went back to Kessel to visit the spice runs, the spice mines, I mean. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, isn't it at the end of that that you see, isn't it intimated that that's when he, when Solo dropped the spice shipment that Greedo refers to in the first film or something like that? I think they tried to tie it in. I might be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. But the only one really out of all those UK stories that is, that were, sorry, that were created by the American uh, creative team that I think is really worth bothering with is the World of Fire arc, which again was written by uh, Chris Claremont and again also features uh, this uh, another female sort of African-American character whose name is I think Mickey or Meesey I, I never knew how you were supposed to pronounce that exactly but but that's a, that's a legitimately great great story the World of Fire one I think I like um, that one quite a bit too for I'm guessing probably most of our listeners have not read it it's, it's a pretty good one where Luke and the gang for want of a better term they end up crashing on this planet and there's also a group of uh, Imperials who have crashed on the planet and they're basically trying to survive because there's this giant thing that's hunting them. And so they have to team up. I found that the, the leader of the, the Empire forces there, I think his name is Grau. At the end of the story, they try to convince him to switch sides and join their yeah. group and, and he decides not to. And I really wanted to see more of that character. I thought he was a very interesting character. It's, it's a rare glimpse of someone on the Empire side who seems like, you know, an honorable, good person. And yes. so I wondered when he said at the end that the Empire were his kind of people, I was like, Why? Like, I don't, I don't, didn't quite get it. And I wanted to see more of him. I thought he was really interesting. I agree. Yeah, he was a great character. The other thing I liked about that story, the World of Fire story, is that I think it was with the monster. I thought that was genuinely scary. I thought, you know, it was, this was one of my favorite sort of arcs as a kid, one that I reread a lot. And, and I thought that that it was, you know, they were very clever at not showing too much of the creature. And it's that classic thing, isn't it? You just see like a claw. It's a classic sort of movie making thing. You know, the more you show of the creature, the, the less scary it gets kind of thing. And I think they handled that in the comic really well. Uh, but then, of course, you get the inevitable letdown when you finally see the whole creature and actually it's a bit rubbish. <laughs> yeah, it was. It seemed like a very infantino design. He seems to like yeah. these fish faces. He's like, yeah, it, right. it just felt very him. The other thing about that issue, that story that stood out to me, so this would have been coming out like in 79 or 80. Or 80. I felt like this plot was very influenced by Aliens, which uh, by Alien, the first Alien movie, which came out in, in 79, uh, where uh, I agree. Yeah, the, I agree. The monsters hunting them and they're sort of. Yep. They're, it's in a little more open, but they're in these like enclosed spaces and just picking them off one by one. It felt like a really cool mashup between Alien and Star Wars. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and I like the sort of you know, there's the the sort of hidden city. It's one of those stories where it was it was really great, kind of almost up until the end. You know, the ending was always a bit of a letdown. So while that was happening in the UK, we've got back in the US issues 31 to 34 with this Omega Frost. The Omega Frost, line. yeah. Now, mm. uh, I thought this storyline had some cool moments where, you know, they end up back in Tatooine and they team up with the Jawas for a little bit. <laughs> the Omega Frost itself didn't make any sense. I know that on the forums, Roquefort Raider tried to explain the science yeah, behind how this yeah. could work. But when I was reading this, I was like, wait a minute, they've got a freeze ray in space? That's not yeah, going to work just, yeah. on anything because all the ships are specifically designed to withstand yeah, the ultimate yeah, cold yeah. of space. How is a freeze ray going to do anything? Well, but don't you think, I think it was something that, you know, so I think Goodwin you know, it decided, right, we're going to, we're going to take the characters back to Tatooine because that'd be cool. You know, we would go back, you know, return to Tatooine kind of thing. That's a really good setup for it. Well, now Tatooine's a really like arid, hot kind of desert planet. What, what, what could we have that's really striking? I know we'll have a weapon that freezes everything, you know, even in the, even under the baking twin suns, you know, it freezes everything. And of course it works great in that environment. And then as the story progresses and they start to use it in space, that's when it runs into trouble. You know, it's, it was a great idea to use it on Tatooine, but not, yeah, not elsewhere, really. It didn't really work. 
But uh, I like that arc, though. I think those four issues are really, really good. Uh, the first two, where they're back on Tatooine particularly, I think are, are excellent. And again, you see um, Goodwin mining a lot of, you know, Star Wars sort of um, um, minutiae, you know, lots of real trivial stuff from the novelizations and things like that. Um, you know, he runs into like Fixer, who was a, a friend of Luke's. Sorry, Luke runs into Fixer, who was a an old friend from Tatooine and things like that. And, and it's interesting, you know, like the sort of, I think there's a, when he meets Fixer, Fixer's like sort of saying that there was like the empire had put in place some kind of cover story about what happened to the Lars family moisture farm and that it was attacked by sand people. And there was this whole cover story, which of course, yeah, that makes sense. You wouldn't really sort of think of that, but it's like, yeah, of course the empire wouldn't want the locals to know that they'd killed uncle Owen and, um, you know, aunt Beru, you know, um, so I like those sorts of things as well. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was a good arc, I think, even if some of the science behind it was a little bit flawed. So with issue 35, we really start to see Goodwin pulling everything together because Vader finally finds out who Luke Skywalker is and he involves, uh, he has this like scheme to, uh, get his revenge and it involves both uh, Baron Tag's brother, uh, who you mentioned earlier, who's an Imperial officer, but also their sister. Uh, Domina, uh, yeah. Um, who's like a priest. Because uh, there's Silas. There's four of the brothers, isn't there? There's, there's Silas, who is the um, sort of the scientific genius. Then there's the younger one, and then there's the sister. But yeah, anyway. But none of those are the ones that we saw either in, in, in at the conference table in Star Wars. So there, there's actually five of them, even though the one that was in the movie doesn't appear again. So it's kind of... But, I, but I, I've, I've never been quite sure whether that was actually the case or whether actually Goodwin was getting confused and one of those was supposed to be, you know, like Silas or something. I was never really quite sure on that, really. For me, when I was reading issue 35, I was like, okay, like, I know that, you know, with issue 39, they're getting into the Empire Strikes Back uh, adaptation. So at this point, Goodwin knows that he's got to wrap up everything he's been building up to in his run. And so here it felt like, He's tying all of his storylines are coming together. We got the all the test stuff for the tags that's been going on for several several arcs now. The stuff with Vader trying to find Luke's identity. It's all coming together. And things like really hit the fan in this arc in issues thirty five through thirty seven where all of that sort of culminates. Yeah, and obviously, you know, I think it was summer 79 that Archie Goodwin began working with Al Williamson on the Empire Strikes Back adaptation so he would have yeah he knew he, you know, he would have been able to work out roughly how many issues he had and he you know he would have obviously been able to sort of to sort of uh, you know start to wrap things up a bit but having said that of course actually the transition's quite jarring there's no you know you never get to see the rebel alliance leaving yavin and finding hoth you know he would goodwin would explore that later in the in the newspaper strip but in terms of the marble run you never see that at all and i don't really understand why because he he must have known that they would be on hoth so you would think that he would be able to write some thing into that but you know it's 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 obvious that by the end of of like the sort of pre empire strikes back run there's obviously a gap of several weeks or if not months before you know w w during which time you know the rebels leave yavin and go to hoth but it's a not a particularly it's one of the things i that annoys me and i don't really like about the marvel series that it's not a particularly uh, smooth transition no i found the transition to be extremely jarring like there was no setup at all for the movies and i understand to a degree where they might not have had enough advance notice but with goodwin working on both the main series and the adaptation mm. of the movie it feels like there there had to have been a better way to do this uh, especially again we're going to also have a fill-in issue between the two with mm. that amount of like lead-in time it would have been nice if they used that fill-in issue to as a transition or something because it's really jarring what ends up happening in this storyline is goodwin does successfully tie up all of his loose ends basically the baron tag who he's seen earlier he was killed so his sister was pretending to help vader but she's got this plan where he's, she's gonna have vader and luke kill each other so she can both eliminate, eliminate both of them in revenge that doesn't work out vader actually 
tricks Luke into killing uh, one of her other brothers. <laughs> so that whoops that that not, that backfired. So we're kind of left where most of the tag stuff has been tied tied up. The sister is still out there somewhere, and we do see her come back later on. That's right. Yeah. It's a relatively satisfying conclusion to everything Goodwin had been doing, but it like has nothing at all to do with what immediately follows. And uh, I found that no, to be and it, a real problem. Yeah, and of course, as we talked about earlier, you've got that bit that's like shoehorned into the end of 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 that uh, Red Queen story arc, the one with the uh, dominant uh, tag. You know that uh, you suddenly have to see the um, you know the the debt to Jabba the Hutt reinstated just in time for uh, the Empire Strikes Back. Even though we do see her come back later, I felt like it was a bit of a wasted opportunity. One thing I've noticed in reading this is that there's a lot of interesting characters that are introduced and then later writers just never bring them back or refer to them. And I felt like there was more that could have been done with the tags later on that later writers just weren't interested. It's almost like we're really going to see, see this some with Joe Duffy where each set of writers has their own characters they introduce and they're, mm. they're like pet characters. I, I felt like it was a missed opportunity that more was not done with the tags later on in the series. Yeah, I agree. You know, they, they each individual writer tended to have their their favorite characters and that was, you know, and there wasn't an awful lot of sort of, you know, crossover, which, um, yeah, maybe, maybe that was a shame, yeah. So in between this issue and beginning of the adaptation 39, we have a one-off... Uh, uh, Riders in the Void. <laughs> yes, uh, which uh, has art by Michael Golden and um, is uh, uh, like going from Infantino to Golden is like whiplash. <laughs> it's like yeah. your, your brain just like get concussion inside your head from just trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, I, I agree. How nice it is, though. You know, it also it throws Infantino's artwork into sharp relief, doesn't it? Because, you know, here we have somebody, I mean, obviously, you know, Michael Golden's a great artist, but he's really drawing, you know, the various pieces of Star Wars tech and the various starships and things like that really, really authentically. And I'm not sure when Louise Jones who I think later became Louise Simonson. I think she married Walter Simonson. I'm not, don't worry right. on that. Yep. But is that right? Right. Yep. But she was the editor. She came on board as the editor of Star Wars. I'm not exactly sure when, but it would have been a roughly around this sort of time. And one of her things was that she really wanted the artists to draw the comic much more like the films because she thought that fans would really appreciate that. I know that from things I've read that Al Williamson said that, you know, it's clear that Lucas really did not like Infantino's art at all and that he really wanted, you know, and he really pushed for somebody with that kind of sort of photorealistic kind of style like Al Williamson to do the um, thing. And of course we see that much more in the, in the Michael Golden issue that we're talking about, the riders in the, um, in the void where, you know, the, the artwork is, is fantastic. I don't think it's a great story necessarily. Um, I know it's a bit of a, you know, from what I've read online and what I've seen in magazines and stuff, I think it's a bit of a fan favorite. Again, this was an issue that passed me by at the time. Um, I didn't always get out to the to the news agent as a kid, or I didn't always have enough pocket money to buy a Star Wars comic, you know. Um, so there were sort of there were slight you know gaps in my collection which I missed, and it wasn't until I think like the 1990s when I'd already read about what a great issue it was um, that I managed to actually pick up a copy of Riders in the Voice. That was one of the ones I came to you know last really, but uh, it's a great, it's, yeah, it's it's really enjoyable, and it's certainly a breath of fresh air to see that incredible artwork um after all those you know infantino issues that were so hard on the eyes you know yeah the artwork's excellent the story is uh, i thought it was pretty good it's basically for our listeners they luke ends up on this spaceship and it turns out that the ship is like this human ship hybrid who's been like drifting through the universe for however long and they end up return at the end of the the story they decide to just continue on their way back into the void and sort of on this endless journey into nothingness. What struck me about this story, as I mentioned earlier, with a lot of the fill-in issues, they don't 
feel like Star Wars stories so much as science fiction stories that they just put the Star Wars characters in. Because this story has nothing really to do with Luke. It really has nothing to do with any of the Star Wars characters. It's You could have any uh, protagonist fill the role of Luke in the story, and it could be in any universe. It, doesn't, it wouldn't... You know, it would be exactly the same if this story, if the main character were, uh, you know, Silver Surfer, you know, or Rom <laughs> or someone like that. Right, right, right. Um, because it's it's really just this, a tale that is an interesting science fiction idea, but really has nothing to do with the Star Wars universe at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, this is another uh, issue that that I detect the influence of of Alien uh, on this because particularly with the the ship the, the sort of this weird alien ship that comes from outside of the known galaxy sort of thing it has that very sort of organic sort of design you know uh, you know a bit like you know some of some of the artwork and some of the sort of effects and some of the sets of the alien uh, ship and also I think the um. I've always sort of thought that the alien, the sorry, the alien in this comic, the um, the the the, the um, sort of pilot of this sort of ship, who's also part of the ship, he looks a little bit, I think, like the um, you know, the uh, the sort of they in the they called him the space jockey in uh, in, yeah. in Alien, you know, uh, and in Prometheus they were known as the engineers, weren't they? They were um, yeah, he sort of looks a bit like that. I I think that. Michael Golden was trying to make some kind of comment on, you know, sort of video games or role-playing games, you know, which were at that time in the sort of very early 80s were sort of burgeoning kind of crazies, you know, with sort of the youth of today because the um the alien pilot in this in this ship, he's kind of retreated, hasn't he, from sort of he he just likes to play sort of time-consuming games and that's essentially what Luke and Leia get caught up in. Uh, I can't help feeling he's trying to sort of make some kind of sort of I don't know, sort of allegory or something about that and the sort of the, the sort of, I don't know, the waste of time that it represents. Maybe that's not what he had in mind at all, but that's kind of how I've always sort of viewed it. But, um, you know, the artwork is, it's just like pure eye candy, isn't it really? It's, it's gorgeous, but yeah, not a great, not a great issue overall. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests. I'd also like to apologize both to my guests and to the listeners for how long it's taken to get this put together. I've just had some health issues that have been slowing me down, plus the editing process on this particular conversation is a lot more time-consuming than previous ones, so sorry about how long it's taking. We do still have two more episodes left in this uh, epic examination of Marvel Star Wars series, so next time in episode three, we'll be discussing the adaptation of Empire Strikes Back that ran in issues 39 to 45. Then we'll be getting into the end of the Archie Goodwin era, the short-lived but highly celebrated Dave Michelini run with Walt Simonson on art, and then we'll also get into the beginning of the Joe Duffy era leading up to the adaptation of uh, Return of the Jedi. So we'll be talking about that all next time. In the meantime, I'd, as always, like to invite everyone to join us on the Classic Comics Forum at classiccomics.org. And I'd also like to invite people to check out uh, my new comic book that I'm working on. It's called The Crime Busters. You can check out a sneak preview at crimebustercomics.com. And that'll be going live on Kickstarter at the beginning of June. So again, thanks very much for listening. Thank you for your patience. And I hope you'll join us next time.